Good morning. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say it is a beautiful day to be worshiping together. Uh, if you see me limping, uh, it's just a sign that I'm getting old. So uh, at youth group on Wednesday, I jumped and I landed and something popped. And uh, Tim looked at me and said, was that sound your knee? And I said, yes, it was. Um, I have not gone to uh, get it checked out yet. I think it's something minor because I'm a doctor. Um, But we shall see uh, how it adjusts. So if I move around a little bit different or don't move around as much or any of those things, then that's why it is. So I had the pleasure uh, this weekend of teaching at a father-son retreat um, up at Cranhill Ranch. And that was a blessing to go with Josh and Carter and do that. Uh, so also, if I fall asleep during the message, that's why. So you have a lot to look forward to. But we're, we're in a series uh, called The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. And, and we've had two weeks. The first week we looked at the purpose of parables. Why does God, why does Jesus speak in parables? And last week we looked at the first parable. But after I uh, said during the first sermon, I used the phrase, the kingdom of God, and someone asked, Are the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven the same thing? And I thought, well, it might be helpful to explain what is the kingdom of heaven. And so this phrase, the kingdom of God, is used 68 times in the New Testament in 10 different books. In Matthew, the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is used 32 times. And when you see it, this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is used in the same places that Matthew and Luke use the phrase, the kingdom of God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. They share a lot of the same stories and same parables uh, that Matthew shares. And when you see them sharing those same parables, they're using what Matthew and Luke are using kingdom of God. A Mark, or Mark, sorry, Matthew is using kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke are using kingdom of God. So I think it means the same thing. In fact, in Matthew 19, when Jesus is talking, he says, they tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And in the very next verse, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus says kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. He uses them interchangeably. So I think it's the same thing. But that still doesn't answer the question, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, the Bible talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God in, in three different ways. Uh, first... It's God's sovereign rule over all things. We know God is sovereignly in control, and everything is part of his kingdom. Psalm 103 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Daniel 4 says, How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So we talk about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. There is a sense that God rules sovereignly over all things. But Jesus, in Matthew 13 and other places, when he's teaching about the kingdom of heaven, he's teaching about God's spiritual rule over our hearts, over the hearts and lives of those that choose to believe to follow Jesus. When he came, he established that spiritual kingdom. In John 18, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. See, in those days, everybody thought Jesus was coming to establish an earthly kingdom. They thought he was going to overthrow Rome and do all these things. 
but he came to establish this spiritual kingdom. And how do you enter that kingdom? 1 John 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus says, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. To enter that spiritual kingdom, you have to be born again. You have to accept Christ's offer of forgiveness for your sins. You have to surrender to him as Lord and receive his gift. Throughout his ministry, he preached and even sent his disciples out to preach that the kingdom of God was at hand. That anyone who would choose to believe in Jesus and follow him would be part of the kingdom of God. And those that would reject him would not be part of the kingdom of God. And so when we look at Matthew 13, that's what he's talking about, this spiritual rule. But also when we think of the kingdom of God, there is a point where it points forward to God's future physical kingdom, his future reign. Zechariah 14 says, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Jesus will come to establish his kingdom forever. So we look at this phrase, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It refers to God's sovereign rule over all things, his spiritual rule over our hearts, and also it points forward to a future kingdom. So with that in mind, let's pray and we can begin today's sermon. Dearly Father, thank you for your goodness. Lord, I'm so thankful to be part of your kingdom. Lord, I once was rebellious and had a heart that was turned away from you. And yet, through your grace and mercy, you softened my heart and you invited me to a relationship with you. And I surrendered my life to you as Lord was adopted into your family. I was sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. I was born again, and I thank you for that gift. And Lord, as we look at today's sermon, we see that there will be a time where you will separate those who know you from those who don't. And that is sobering. And yet at the same time, we know you make the invitation to all, to any who would come. So Lord, we 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 proclaim that message each and every week if you would come you'll receive grace and mercy speak the word today in your name amen a big question for today this is the big question do you want justice i don't know what it says about me but all the tv shows i like are all the same basically at the beginning of the tv show someone's murdered and they got to figure out who did it that's Almost every show I watch, that's the basic premise. So they spend the whole show trying to figure out who did it. They look at all the evidence. They find someone who's probably guilty. But if they find that person the first 15 minutes, you know they're not actually guilty. You have to wait till the end to figure out who the person that actually did it was. But the end, there's a few times. You know, almost every show that we watch, at the end they catch the bad guy. And they they send him off to be prosecuted. And you're like, yay. And then every once in a while... They don't catch the bad guy. At the end of those shows, I'm like, why do I like this show? This show is so stupid. I get so frustrated because they didn't catch the bad guy. There was no justice. That's because we all have this sense that there should be justice, that the killer should be caught, the drunk driver, the child exploiter, whoever they are, they should be caught, they should go to jail, and they should be punished for their actions. 
We have this innate morality that God has printed on our hearts that we say there needs to be justice. Could you imagine a world without justice where your next door neighbor was a murderer and you knew he was a murderer, but there was no prosecution and you find yourself worried every day, what's he going to do? Where you knew someone could break into your house and steal your stuff and nothing would have to happen to him? That kind of society would not be a good society to live in. But maybe sometimes you find yourself asking God, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you bringing about justice? Aren't you the king of the universe? Aren't you sovereign? Disciples sometimes found themselves asking that same question. Sometimes I wondered, as they heard Jesus teach about the kingdom, they didn't ask, well, when are you going to overthrow Rome? When are you going to establish this kingdom here in Jerusalem? They were hoping God would come and do justice and make Israel a nation again. Today's parable, Jesus is going to teach that he is a just judge. And there will come a time when he will return as a judge. Now it's a shorter parable. So what I want to do today is I want to read through the parable first. And then we're going to explain it and then we're going to apply it. So that's a good plan. So let's read through it. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go up and pull the weeds out? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. So that's the parable. It's a short little parable. But let's, let's look at it. First he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. That's a, that's a good start. So a man goes and he sows good seed. But while everyone's sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weed amongst the wheat and then went away. Did you know there was actually a law against this? Because this was something that actually happened at that time. So the Roman government had a law that you would be imprisoned if you went into your neighbor's field and you put wheat in there, you put weeds in their field. It was a way that people could get back at somebody or could sabotage someone. So this was a rule. And so what happened was when the weeds sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds appeared also. Now these weeds are called darnel. They look, look a lot like wheat. I have a picture here. So, uh, when they're, that's not the most high def picture. Sorry about that. Uh, when they are, uh, before they bear fruit, you can't really tell much of a difference between the two. They look very similar. As they're coming up, it's hard to tell the difference between the two. Now, eventually, once they bear fruit, if you go to the next slide, you can see once they bear fruit, then the, the difference becomes very distinguishable. Because the wheat gets heavy and it starts to lean over, whereas the tares, the darnel, don't do that. Now, darnels actually produce these black seeds that would make you nauseous and sick if you ate them. So they were a counterfeit. And so as they're growing, they look the same, but once they're fully ripe, they don't. 
So it says the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? The servants are confused because in a field it was common for a little Darnell to be there. You know, we all deal with weeds. Every time we are sowing, you know, things, we have to pull the weeds. So this would be common. But they're looking out in the field, and the whole field is full of wheat and darnell. They're, they're all together, sowed together, and so it confuses the servants. And the master said, an enemy did this. And so they go, okay, that makes sense. But they want to get rid of the darnell. So they say, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. Now, what happened was the, 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 what's the thing that grows into the soil? Thanks, the roots. Sorry. Working on a little sleep. We're going to have a couple of these today. The roots of the darnel and the wheat would grow and get intertangled. And so if you just went in before it was time to harvest the wheat and you pulled on the darnel, you would actually pull up some of the wheat. And so he's saying what you need to do is wait until it's time to pull up the, the wheat. It's time to harvest the wheat. At that time, then you can pull out both. And you can easily separate. You can take the tares. You can take this darnel and you can put them in a bundle and you can you can burn that and you can take the wheat and you can put it in the barn and make sure you take care of it now as we read through these parables in matthew 13 some of them we don't have an interpretation so we have to go and we have to look at what's going on and try and figure it out but some of them we do have an interpretation so if you fast forward in chapter 13 all the way to verse 36 it says then he left the crowd and went into the house his disciples came to him and said Explain the parable of the weeds in the field. Now, they didn't ask him to explain the parable of the mustard seed. Maybe they got that. Maybe they understood it. Maybe they're hearing this and they're wondering, okay, Jesus, when are you going to separate the wicked from the righteous? When are you going to establish your kingdom? When are you going to, when are you going to overthrow Rome? And so Jesus explains the parable. And he said, the one who sowed good seed was the son of man. Now this phrase, the son of man, is used by Jesus to refer to himself. He refers to himself as the son of man 81 times. In the New Testament, there's only one other instance of someone calling Jesus the son of man, and that was Stephen when he had his vision. And now why did Jesus use this phrase, the son of man? Why did he continually call himself that more than he called himself any other name? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, um, the Old Testament has prophecy about the Son of Man. So this title emphasized both his humanity, he was born the son of Joseph, and his deity. His humanity as he entered into the world as a humble servant, his deity as he came to fulfill prophecy as the Messiah. John 1 summarizes it well. The Word, that's Jesus, we learned earlier in John 1, became flesh. He became man. He was the Son of Man. And He made His dwelling among us. But that same One had glory. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. Jesus was fully divine, fully God, and yet fully man. And he chose this designation for himself to emphasize his humanity while also pointing back to all those prophecies in the Old Testament that looked forward to the coming Messiah, the Son of Man, who would actually be the Son of God. So Jesus said the Son of Man is the sower. The field is the world. Now it's interesting. This this is just saying that in the world there are going to be tares and wheat intermingled. Now a common misinterpretation is that the field is the church. Now, it's very true that in the church there are wheat and tares that grow close together to each other. But sometimes people take parables too far. And so they'll look at this parable and they say, okay, well, if in the church you have wheat and you have tares, then that means as a church we should never make any judgments about the morality of someone else because maybe they're actually a wheat. But you look at the rest of the scripture, Matthew 18 gives a process for church discipline. When someone sins, what do you do? Well, first you confront them. And if they repent and they turn from that sin, then, then when that happens, okay, now, now it's done. There's no more church discipline. It's over. But if you confront them and they say, I'm not, I'm not doing that, I'm not sinning, I'm not making any mistakes, and they reject you, then you go with two or three people and you confront them again. If they repent at that point, there's no further church discipline. Nothing needs to go past that. But if they, if they again reject the discipline, then you bring them to the church. If they repent then, that's as far as the church discipline needs to go. Then you move on. But if they again are refusing to acknowledge their sin, are refusing to turn from their sin, then it says the church is to treat them like an unbeliever. Well, how does the church treat an unbeliever? You love them. And you share the gospel. Because they need the good news about Jesus Christ. But there is this sense that... With church membership, we protect our body. And so we say, you cannot be a member at this point, but we still love you and we still want you to come to see Christ. Now, one example of that in the early church was 1 Corinthians 5. Now, at 1 Corinthians 5, in the church in Corinth, there was all this stuff going on, and they were bragging about how gracious they were. In fact, there was a guy sleeping with his dad's wife. And the church was like, Hey, look at how much grace we have. We're not even doing anything about this. We're just saying, ah, it's fine. And Paul's saying, look, even people that aren't from the church are saying that's wrong. And you're not confronting it. Why aren't you confronting it? And he he writes this in verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? What business is it of mine to try and pull the tares out from among the wheat out there in the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. And so Paul is saying there are times where, as a church, we need to point out sin and call out sin, and we need to do that. We just can't let it go. But at the same time, it's not our job to judge the world. Jesus is going to come and do that. It's our job to love the world and point them to Christ. So sometimes people take a parable, I think, too far. Now, now, that doesn't mean we have the right as Christians just to walk around as judgmental Christians, you know. I, I've, I've, I've experienced that at times in my life where, you know, people are being judged for what they wear or, or, you know, or what they do or all these kind of things. And that's not what this verse is saying. But it's saying when there's clear sin, we as a church need to confront it lovingly in a, in a goal of, of restoring that believer to a right relationship with the Lord. All right, let's keep moving. 
And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The good seed stands for believers. People are they're part of the spiritual kingdom that Christ has established. People that have given their life to Christ. <clears throat> and the weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy sows, who sows them is the devil. So the weeds aren't, aren't, these are, the weeds are people. Now the Bible says all of us at one point were that. We were all enemies of God because we are people of the evil one. And we all needed salvation. We all needed grace. I think when it comes to Satan, there's, there's really two temptations. And I think depending on your church background, we usually fall on one side or the other. Uh, the one side is those that think that's everything's Satan's fault, you know. Think of that old uh, skit from the 80s, you know, with the church lady where she's like, Satan? She always blames everything on Satan. And sometimes I talk to people and every little thing, you know, the car broke down. It's Satan, you know, everything. And I, I think in our, where we are as a church, I don't think that's as much a temptation as the other end. Where sometimes we don't realize that Satan is actually active. That he's on the prowl, seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. So either we overemphasize Satan, and sometimes we see even the littlest thing as being the movement of Satan, or we underemphasize it, and we lose sight of the fact that Satan is always trying to sow counterfeits. And that's the thing with these tares, with this darnell. It looks just like the wheat. Satan can't create. All he can do is manipulate. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. That's who he is. And so what he wants to do is take God's good stuff and create counterfeits. We see it all in our culture, you know, especially nowadays with the issue of sex. God created sex for marriage between a husband and wife, and yet Satan is sowing all these counterfeits and saying, this is, this is good, this is where you'll find true satisfaction, this is where you'll find true life. And, and God did create to be good, and it's a wonderful thing in God's context. But Satan is always trying to tempt us to go after the counterfeit. You know, my, my favorite illustration, uh, my, my birthday's tomorrow, and someone from church today gave me a present, and I opened it, and of course it was what I always get every year, Snickers. You guys know me and love me well, thank you. But that old illustration, those Snickers satisfies. They do for a moment. They, they do. And Satan is always, you know, tempting us with that momentary satisfaction, saying, if you do this, this will bring true fulfillment. But it's just a tear. It looks like the wheat that will give you sustenance and will provide you what you need. It looks just like it. But in the end, you find it's, it's not satisfying. It's not true. And so Satan is always trying to sow these counterfeits. And that says the harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are the angels. As Ben, know, ben mentioned, we don't know when the end of the age will happen. But we do know God will establish his kingdom and the angels will have a part in that. Verse 40, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So at the end of time, Jesus, the Son of Man, will be the judge. He'll send out His angels to do His will. They will only weed out the, these those who do evil, they'll weed out everything, who ca- everything that causes sin. That's something to look forward to. You know, not only those that do evil, but anything that would cause us to stumble. 
Throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This phrase is used six times in Matthew and Luke. Now, it's interesting. We don't often talk about hell because it's not a very fun topic. But Jesus preaches on hell very often. <laughs> and in a couple of weeks, when we do the parable of the fish, of separating the fish, uh, we decided, you know, we need to we need to take a moment and stop and and uh, so everybody's going to be really excited. We're going to have a sermon on hell in a few weeks. I know you guys are all excited about that. Um, but the reality is that we don't talk about it. And, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't get excited about that, guys. It's not like when I'm looking at my sermon series, I'm like, okay, man, I can't wait till we get to hell. I am so excited about that sermon. But, but the reality is that, that this is something we need to talk about. A few years ago, there was a, a book that came out that was very popular. And, and when that book came out, there was a whole bunch of responses to that book. And so I, in, that, in that time, I read like five books on hell. I had never read a single book on it, but it was like that was the hot topic of the day. And so now that's not the hot topic right now, but, but this is something Jesus talks about often. So in a few weeks, we're going to look at, in depth at that. This, at this moment, though, we just want to remember that it's real. Jesus teaches there will be a separation between the wheat and the tares. Verse 43, And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Who are the righteous? Is it people that have done good things? No. It's people that are part of the kingdom. It's those that have given their life to Christ. Those that have been forgiven. Romans 3.10 says there's no one righteous, not even one. Fast forward to verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And the passage goes on to explain that righteousness is applied through the sacrifice of Christ. So the separation of the wicked and the righteous isn't like, okay, the people that did more good things then bad things are the righteous, and the people that did more bad things than good things are the wicked. No, it's just simply those that are part of the kingdom and those that aren't. Those who have received Christ and those who rejected Him. Let's rewind to the beginning. Oh, I missed one verse. No, I didn't. I got it right there. Okay, good. Let's rewind to the beginning. Do you want justice? Do you want justice? We all want justice here on this earth. We all hope that the drunk driver or the child exploiter or the killer will go to jail. We all hope that we can live in a place where we're not afraid, where we know that there's law, where we know we're safe. But then when it comes to the idea of eternal punishment, we balk at it. We do this, I think, as Douglas Donald says, because we ask the question... What is wrong with justice? Why does judgment, when found on the lips of Jesus, get a bad rap? Think about it. We call judges in our country for the Supreme Court to the lowest court justices. The idea is that their rulings are just and bring about justice. Nobody complains if a justice punishes a lawbreaker for breaking one of our nation's laws. The Bible depicts Jesus as the ultimate justice. Why then do people complain all the time about God punishing someone for breaking his laws? Our laws are imperfect. His are perfect. Our justices are imperfect. His son is perfect. Jesus is the ultimate just justice. Three of the parables point to this justice that God will judge. And I don't know about you, but 
When I think about this, it's pretty sobering. I have friends who don't know Jesus. I have family members who don't know Jesus. And there's two things I can do when the Bible teaches on this kind of thing. Either I can lament or I can reject it or I can receive the teaching that the Bible teaches and say, okay, now let's go. See, it's sobering to me because so often I'm passive. I sit on the wayside. I think there's another day. There's another day. There's another day. I don't see the emphasis that God wants me to see. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always. In your bulletin, there's the gospel. It's a, it's a simple way to explain the gospel, written by Dare to Share, a, a student ministry organization that, that helps teenagers share their faith. And what I'm reminded of is that the amazing, profound, wonderful truth of this gospel that God created us to be with Him. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God created Adam and Eve, and they lived in the garden in perfect bliss. And yet, Satan, the counterfeiter, told them, did God really say, did God really say this? Do you really want to live a life where you don't know good from evil, where you haven't eaten from this one tree in the garden? And they bought into Satan's lie, and they sinned. And ever since then, all of us, of sin. And the hardship is that our sins separate us from God. We, we have this great chasm between us and God. And when you read through the Old Testament, you see that sins can't be paid for by good deeds. The Israelites tried. They tried to follow the law. They tried to follow all the commands. They tried to do these things, but they kept falling short time and time again because sins can't be paid for by good deeds. We can't do enough good things to earn our way into heaven. But the amazing thing is that Jesus came and paying the price for our sins, he died on the cross and rose again. I was talking uh, this weekend at, a, at the father-son retreat with a, with a guy, and uh, uh, his first wife passed away, and he got remarried, and his second wife passed away. And he was just talking about how hard it's been. At the same time, he said he's seen God's goodness in every moment. God has been there, and he's seen, he, he keeps saying it, it could have been worse. He didn't lose any of his other kids, he just lost his wife. And he was talking, my heart was broken. But in the middle of that speech, he kept pointing to this hope. Because he had a hope. Because of what Christ did. And as we talked, and we were talking about different ways we've been able to wrestle through this, and one of the things that came out in what he was saying, and one of the things that comes out as I think about this is that whenever we get in those moments where we can't understand life, and life seems too hard and too difficult, and we can't comprehend how God could allow something to happen like that, one of the best things to do is look at the life of Jesus. Jesus willingly entered into this life, and he chose to be born as a human. Now, there's no record of Joseph in Jesus' adult life, so he probably lost his earthly father and had to mourn through that. He chose a disciple who was going to betray him. He said, I want that guy. And he washed that disciple's feet just before that disciple went out and betrayed him to the Romans. 
He walked through life experiencing hardship, experiencing difficulty. As he hung on the cross, he was mocked, he was beaten, and at any point in that moment, he could have gone like this and just come down from the cross and stop the suffering. And yet he didn't. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And that's the E. Everyone who trusts in Jesus will return, will receive eternal life. It's the invitation to all of us. And the best thing about that life is that it's not just a, defin- a destination. Life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. God is with us in the pain. And God doesn't waste our pain. He walks with us through the trials and the hardships. See, I think parables like this should cause us to examine ourselves. In Matthew 7, Jesus says that everyone who calls him Lord, not everyone who calls him Lord will be saved. And they'll say, look, I did all these things in your name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. There will be tares among the wheat that look like the wheat. But Jesus says what it comes to is, do you know me? Do you know me? Do you know me? See, the Christian walk is about knowing the God of the universe that loves you, gave His Son for you, and has invited you into His kingdom. A spiritual rule where if you give your heart to Him and believe in Him, you will be saved. I've spent my whole adult life trying to tell students and then adults about this truth and you wonder why would i do that when i asked sandy's family to become to 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 marry her the biggest question was they could not understand why i wanted to go into a field that didn't pay well Uh, you want to be a youth pastor does that pay well no it pays horrible why do you want to do it because that's what God has called me to do. But more importantly, I wanted to do it because I knew there was seas of teenagers that didn't know Jesus. They were headed on a path of destruction. And I had the solution. Not only did I have the solution, that solution had changed my life. I was a teenager and I was a wreck. And Jesus changed my life. I couldn't think of anything better to do with my life than to spend my whole life pleading with people. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Don't go another day. Jesus invites all who are weary and burdened to come and receive rest. And for those of us that are saved, take this command to cast the seeds seriously. Our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, our family members need Jesus. And we know the truth. It's hard. It's awkward. It's nerve-wracking. But let's cast the seeds and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dearly Father, Lord, so often I'm so intimidated by what might happen that I don't share. So often I'm, I'm worried about rejection that I keep my mouth shut. 
Lord, there was a time where Jesus' teaching was too hard. And the crowds, they, they, they left. They said, this teaching is too hard. Those that had said, I want to follow Jesus, and they were following him around, said, that teaching's too hard, and they just walked away. And Jesus looked to his disciples and said, what about you? And they said, where are we going to go? Who else contains the words of life? No one. But now we know your words of life. We have them. Help us to share them in your name. Amen.